Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. One false step and you'll fall all the way to Tartarus. And believe me, unlike the doors of death, this would be a one-way trip. A very hard fall. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy, happy New Year. We've made it through to another turn of the calendar and today we are going to be wrapping up our planes of chaos with the tartarian depths of carcerai the plane of chaotic neutral evil or something like that something like that (laughs) so carcerai sits between the abyss and the gray waste of hades so it's between chaotic evil and neutral evil and it is the literal prison plane of the multiverse. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of scenarios you can kind of run with here. One thing I kind of discovered that is kind of shocking to me is the Blood War actually kind of leaves this area by and large untouched. And considering it's right between the two warning planes, you'd think that would be focused more here, but it's not, so surprise the demons do pass through and they do use it as a staging ground for assaults in the blood war and they do occasionally have battles here but it is not as common a plane of conflict as say hades or gehenna right one would expect it would happen here a lot more because even the devils do come through on their own right as well but again there's reasons for this we'll get to later So the name carceri comes from the Latin word carcare or carceris, which literally means prison. It is the root for the word incarcerate. So imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. So it's literally a prison plane. This is where all of the truly heinous souls go. This is primarily a plane occupied by the souls of traitors, backstabbers, and other people of underhanded ambition. You know, all the people you see on the evening news, pretty much. Again, going through, we'll talk about things. Carceri in the older editions were actually called Tartarus, which was the Greek version of the underworld, not necessarily Hades, but another form of underworld that got changed in later editions. Therefore, a lot of your lore is going to have a really heavy influence on on this plane. Absolutely, yeah. In second edition, Tartarus and Carceri were used interchangeably in reference to this plane. So one of the big things about Carceri is that Almost no creatures live in Carceri voluntarily. If you're in Carceri, chances are you were put there by somebody or something that wanted you to be... Out of the hair. Yeah. Wanted you in a place where they knew you would still be there if they had to come back looking for you. Right. Again, this is kind of where you're going to dump your problems. As Ian said, very few come here voluntarily even less leave. It's a prison plane. So again, if you want to start getting your imaginations going now, the whole like escape from New York, The Rock, any kind of like your whole prison break series, you can run those here. There's going to be a lot of fun you can do. There's a lot of stuff you can throw in old heroes, kind of do like a Dante's Inferno type thing and just NPCs that you hate or you don't like. You can punish them pretty much however you want. Just throw them in Tartarus. And if they're bad, they belong. Though not necessarily only bad people are here, which is kind of a bit of a twist as well. Right. So Carceri or at least the uppermost layer called Othrys, 
is a staging ground for the Blood War, as I mentioned. Demons are relatively common here because it is the adjacent plane to the Abyss. So they will muster here on this first layer, especially since the river Styx flows through the first layer. So they'll follow the river through Carceri into Hades, where the bulk of the battles happen. But occasionally you'll run into troops of Yugoloths or assaulting armies of devils that are pushing towards the abyss. So there are battlefields on that first layer. They tend to not go down below the first layer because it's very difficult to get there for one. And two, the further in you go, the harder it is to leave. And it's already a very difficult plane to leave in the first place. Well, like when we talk about Tartarus, it is a difficult place to get out. It's very easy to get into. Again, you have the river Styx that flows through. You've got portals that lead in. There are portals out now where the ferryman's going to be with the river Styx. You are going to have these large numbers of demons or devils. As you go to the other layers of the plane or the other parts and planets, there are a few portals, but they are all going to be extremely heavily guarded. So... Again, even as you go down, those portals do become more sparse, but they are prime property. And one of the fun things about Tartarus is that when you're there, pretty much the only way to get out, except through the river Styx or through one of these portals, is you have to be able to overpower the entity that put you in. And so how you go about gaining that power, either via favor, domination, war, however, is a thing. So these portals become a point of power games and trades in their own right, because most of the entities in Tartarus are trying to figure a way out. Right. That is a very good point to make. Another point that I would make is that nobody is entirely sure what gain more power than the person who put you there really means or what that actually entails because there are entities here that have been here for millennia that have accrued huge amounts of power but are still stuck here this is true i think maybe that was left intentionally vague by the game writers that, that seemed more to me because whenever i read that in the planescape books that seemed more to me to be along the lines of this is the folktale that they tell about this plane you know, this is the goal that they set themselves towards, whether it's actually attainable or not. So you think it's a carrot? It is absolutely a carrot. Okay, that could be a possibility. I just, uh, again, this is Tartarus. So on this first layer, just going to jump ahead a bit, you're going to find a lot of the Greek Titans. And the Greek Titans obviously put here by Zeus and the other gods of Olympus. So their goal would be to literally overpower Zeus and the gods of Olympus, which would be no mean feat. I would think that's reasonable. But again, if it's a carrot, maybe that's part of your torture, you know? Oh, yeah, because... If we step back into Greek mythology, one of the people who was condemned to Tartarus in Greek myth was Tantalus. And if we take the story of Tantalus, where his punishment was standing in neck deep water, and every time he bent down to take a drink, the water would recede away from him, and that there was this branch with fruit hanging above him, and every time he reached up to take a bite, it would lift just outside of his reach. That taunting, that torture that you get with that plays into that same motif. That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I just want to say the Greeks are some imaginative and really sadistic and evil people sometimes because damn. (laughs) (laughs) So the function of the plane, the construction of the plane, as it were, is not typical of the rest of the planes. It's formed as this sort of chain of beads that stretches off 
possibly into infinity. It may wrap back around into a circuit. No one is entirely sure. And it's kind of like a Russian nesting doll. So each layer is within the previous layer. But because of the way that the spatial stuff works, whenever you go down to the next layer, the gap between each individual orb on that layer stretches out compared to the layer above it. For example, Othrys, which is the topmost layer, the layer that you're probably going to come into if you ever go to Karsarai, the orbs are roughly 100 miles apart. You can look up into the sky and you can see the next orb in either direction. And these orbs are absolutely huge on the scale of millions of square miles. So, I mean, these are truly planet-sized orbs that you're talking about. Literally. Some of the older information you read, particularly if you start looking at like third edition or if you start pulling up stuff online, they literally say that each orb is the size of a planet. Now they do get smaller as you go down, but even the smallest ones are going to be the size of something like Pluto or a planetoid or something along those lines. So these are all as massive as you need them to be. You're not going to run out of space here. No. But then as you go down the second layer, Catharis, each orb is roughly 500 miles apart. And then next one down, Minithis, they're roughly 5,000 miles apart. And they keep going and going and going until you get down to the last layer, Agathis, which either they are so far apart that you can't see the next one or there's only one depending on which source you look at. Right. And I think going again this way, the writers have left a lot to the imagination, which is a great thing to do. Not everything has to be, you know exactly this. There's not a full atlas. So leaving a lot to your player's imagination is good. It may or may not be a way to cut a corner and make it a little easier for you too. As you're DMing, you generally have some rough notes. You don't have a full novel for your players. Your first DMs might. That was my first problem with the DMs I tried to have. every little detail figured out and that just never ever works (laughs) no because you write a whole bunch of stuff down and then within the first 15 minutes they go somewhere which you hadn't planned and you don't have anything for there or they do something that breaks your world and you're like well what do i do now (laughs) yeah i've thrown out entire chapters because someone decided to ignore something or kill an npc and i'm like just well okay bye just you know (laughs) it goes about four hours work yep oh look a critical hit damn (laughs) all right so you can actually travel between beads on the same layer um there are several different methods for doing this naturally if you have a natural flying ability you can get yourself ahead of steam from a high point on one orb and just sort of aim yourself at the next orb and once you get outside of the immediate sphere of influence of the orb you start from you go through basically zero gravity until you hit the other one and it seems that there is still atmosphere in the area surrounding these orbs and that you can still breathe out there it didn't say anything about you know having to hold your breath or having any sort of special preparation necessary for that i'd kind of imagine it kind of like the astral plane where it's just there's not a lot there but you can definitely exist in it yeah and so the options that were given specific for carceri there's one called a ferrous sled f-e-r-r-o-u-s so it's basically this slab of lodestone this magnet slab you climb onto it and you kick off and it magnetically repels you from the orb that you're on 
the trick with these is that they are attuned to a specific orb. So once you use them to get off of that orb, they're completely useless. Now, see, when I read about these, one, they're cool because they have an exact price. All of these methods of transport is one of those things this cost this much. And they're not cheap, by the way. I think the ferris sled was like 4,000 gold. 4,000 or 2,500. It had an exact price. With these, I kind of picture either like a minecart type issue, or if you've ever seen the old 80s movie Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where they had the little toboggans. Yes, the sled. That's kind of what I imagine with these. It'd be a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Then the next one is a skin balloon, which is literally a hot air balloon made from the hide of the creatures native to Carceri. It may be made from the skin of petitioners, so you could have like human skin on this thing. It could be made from the other various very evil, nasty creatures that live here, some of which we're going to talk about at the end of the episode. But it is functionally a hot air balloon. You build a fire in it, it lifts you up, and you just ride it across. The issue with the skin balloon is that the people who live in Carceri get really upset whenever they see you flying around in a skin balloon. And so they will probably attack you on site if they see you with one. Especially if they're made out of grandma or something like that. Yeah. Again, the skin balloon's kind of cool. I think this had a set price of a thousand gold pieces, if I recall correctly. A thousand fifteen hundred, somewhere in that range, yeah. Yeah. One really fun scenario I was imagining when I saw this would be to do something like a really, really dark steampunk scenario. Or if you really wanted to get twisted, kind of do like a whole Wizard of Oz. Spoilers if you've not seen. They leave Oz through the hot air balloon. But yeah. You could totally do Carceri would be great to do some sort of Wizard of Oz type scenario. This might be as we start trying to do scenarios, something we want to do it throughout the new year is trying to translate stories into playable scenarios. This might need to be one we focus on because like, oh, what's the dark game? Alice in Wonderland where it's a really dark Wonderland, but doing a dark Oz would be, oh my God. Yeah, Grim Dark Oz is Carceri without a doubt. So yeah, I'm like I'm getting all excited. I want to start like I need so many just books and journals. To start writing all these ideas down. Yeah. Well, stay on target because we still got a ways to go. <laughs> the third option is called a spinneret. This is your cheap option. It's a specially woven silk rope that allows you to catch the wind and hurdle yourself to the next orb. It's cheap. It's like 200 gold a piece, but it's incredibly dangerous because you're at the mercy of the wind in a plane where nothing can be trusted. Yeah, again, this is a chaotic plane, boys and girls. (laughs) It is the plane where everything is lying to you. Oh, what if someone was selling like fake spinneret web? And so like it only lasts so long and then disenchants like halfway through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So your College of Sophistry bards are definitely going to be found all over this place. It's beautiful. I love it. Yes. (laughs) The quote from the second edition book was, only a fool or a pauper would trust the winds of Carceri. That sounds about correct. And then the last option is you can catch a ferry on the river Styx. So there's the Morainaloths who are the Styx boatmen. They're a form of Yugoloth. And they do ply the river here in Carceri as well as through into the abyss and up into some of the earlier levels of Pandemonium, and then the other way through Gehenna and Bator and up into Acheron. And so you can pay them to take you from one orb to the other because the river Styx goes from one orb to another. And because they have these magical boats that can go between the planes, they can hop from one orb to the next relatively easily. You can use the ferryman to get 
into Carcerai, it's actually a whole lot cheaper than going anywhere else, strangely enough. But getting out of Carcerai requires at least 5,000 gold worth of magic items as payment. Yeah, I was going to say, the ferrymen getting to Carcerai or in between are probably your least expensive option, your most efficient option. They're your safest option. And they are your safest option. Getting out is... Well, I was going to say, even riding on the ferry is not that safe of an option. I didn't say it was safe. I said it's the safest. I would say maybe the lodestones were... No, because you have to land. Fair point. You reach exit (laughs) velocity to get off of your orb, and then you have to land it. Fair point. Yeah, no, I never considered the landing. (laughs) It's the landing that'll get you every time. Damn straight. So whenever you're traveling by ferry, you can only go between the layers of Othrys because the River Styx doesn't extend to the lower layers of Carcerai, so the ferryman physically cannot take you there. But one of the other things that I noticed, this was a little bit in the second edition Planescape book. Whenever you're traveling between the orbs on Othrys, by any means other than the ferry boat, there's this phenomenon called the bells that you can run into and it has this sort of eerie slightly off kilter tinkling noise and the sound gives you promises of your heart's desire and it tries to draw you off course draw you off into the void away from the other orbs just into nothingness it is the creepiest of siren songs but it is still a siren song it is rumored that in the void around Othrys exist creatures from beyond the beginnings of time. So the original evils banished before the Titans were even conceived. This is where you'd start stocking up your outsiders if you want to start throwing in your Lovecraftian tentacle monsters or some of those wonderful things you might find in Darkest Dungeon. They're going to live out here. This is where your old gods are imprisoned. And it almost makes me want to do something in a vein of Othrys is actually the second layer and they have intentionally placed portals here so that everything comes into the second layer to avoid the first layer where these ancient evils are imprisoned. Oh, that is brilliant. That is a wonderful idea. And that it is sort of like a ring world kind of deal where it is one solid plane. And then this chain of worlds that gets smaller as they go down is within it. I absolutely love hidden knowledge as a theme. And again, a wonderful scenario hook is you could have your first, you know, three to five levels going through is maybe your party's doing a carcerai jailbreak. And so you go, you jailbreak, whoever you need to jailbreak out of carcerai. We'll talk about various things or people that can be here. But then what if one of these old gods kind of sneak out behind you after your party gets out with their package or their target? And now you've got to deal with that. That would be an amazing hook because now your party's responsible for this terror just being unleashed upon the world if you have a great old one pacted warlock their whole character arc is them getting powerful enough to jailbreak their patron from the void on the first layer of carcerai oh absolutely i love it that's just a wonderful idea warlocks just have so many good 
little points where you can pick out, you know, just a whole story arc. Patrons are just good for that. They are. And I love how they've done that. That is one character that I really think they knocked it out of the park with, with fifth edition, because third edition, second edition was different. I'm not sure fourth edition. Again, it was the dark ages. I skipped it, but the fifth edition patrons, you can just do so much with beautiful game writing. I love it. Well done wizards. Thank you. And then one last little bit, anyone who hears the bells, has to succeed on a saving throw. In second edition, it was a save versus spell, but it was also at a minus six penalty. So it was a really hard check to pull off. In fifth edition, I would make this a wisdom save at disadvantage. Uh, with a fairly high DC, so maybe like a DC 16. Yeah, that stands to reason. Now, one of the neat things they did that was difficult to translate to 5th edition, 2nd edition, 1st edition, 3rd edition, you could actually take damage to your stat score. So you could take wisdom damage or con damage, where your con score would permanently be lowered until you got a restoration spell or some sort of magical aid. When your wisdom hit zero, your character just dropped into a coma filled with nightmares. If your strength dropped to zero, either you'd fall into a puddle on the ground or some dms would say that you died because you didn't have enough musculature to actually like let your heart beat if your con dropped to zero you perished how would you translate that for fifth edition would you actually do a permanent stat because in fifth edition they don't have a permanent stat damage or penalty yeah that's a tricky one because attribute damage isn't a thing in fifth edition but it is still specified like with the feeble mind spell if you're reduced to one intelligence with the feeble mind spell you lose all higher cognitive function you lose the ability to speak you lose the ability to understand language you can't use items you're basically reduced to a creature that is acting purely on instinct so you can still drop your face into a trough of water and drink you can still gnaw on food and eat you still have those urges and can still satisfy them but you lose all higher cognitive function and so it would probably be something along those lines so like but again for each one it would be different but is that going to be our goal for 2022 is bring back attribute damage (laughs) see I, i never liked attribute damage because it was so hard to keep track of because it affects so many things that's the issue that i have with it because you know if you reduce your constitution it actually reduces your maximum hit points and so you have to do all that math every time that you lose constitution score though with the advent of things like roll 20 dnd beyond things like that it is a lot easier to keep track of now than it was in the past but not everybody uses a digital aid i don't I don't use the digital aid, so I don't want to emphasize... Join us in the modern time, Ian. (laughs) It is a pen and paper game. I am playing it with pen and paper. (laughs) Then you can do math, and I'll bring you an abacus next session. (laughs) Works for me. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, this is, again, one of the huge debates people have with the way the game is playing. If you do use these things, attribute damage is a lot easier to manage. If you don't, I don't know, maybe stacking double disadvantage per so many. If you take five points of attribute damage, maybe double disadvantage on rolls using that stat, perhaps. I don't know. That's something we'll have to ponder, but it used to be a thing. It's not a thing anymore. What I would do is I would say that if you had proficiency with a skill or with an attribute, you would lose your proficiency bonus on those checks. Oh, that'd be a great idea. Yes. That only works if you have proficiency, though. So 
I mean, otherwise, maybe you have to do a high-low roll to start with. Anytime you would have to make those checks, and if you rolled, say, a 10 or lower, you just automatically failed. That would be a good way to do it as well. Sort of like with the mirror image spell, how you have to roll to see whether it hits you or one of your mirror images. I could see that. Or just permanent disadvantage with anything that uses that ability or that stat. There's also that option, yeah. So these are things that you would probably have to work as a DM on the table. These are some ideas. This is something Ian and I will probably hash out on our own over time because it, it is something that should be addressed, I think. So the reason why we're talking about this, because James did jump the gun just a little bit, is because whenever you hear these battles, you have to succeed on that save or you take 1d 20 points of wisdom damage so you have the potential to be dropped to zero wisdom if you hear these bells it just drives you mad right the bells the bells and it's permanent until it is healed by in second edition it was a cleric's restoration spell in fifth edition it would probably be a greater restoration spell which would also be an option well, that'd be a waste of a way because that's a fifth level spell so that's a fairly potent thing that you yeah. have to have a fairly high level cleric to pull off Right. And then I believe restoration requires diamonds too, does it not? No, that's resurrection. Oh, okay. I don't believe that greater restoration requires diamonds. It may require a gem of some sort. I think it might require a ruby. I'm pulling it up right now. Diamond dust worth at least 100 gold points, which the spell consumes. Okay. Well then, I guess so. Yeah, so you need 100 gold points. So again, this is not a cheap or easy spell to cast. No. But yeah, so I mean, these bells are the bells of madness. And again, just for atmosphere and stuff, you're riding down the river Styx, listening to the bells of madness. I'm sailing away. <laughs> you don't you don't get that on the river. This is only if you're in the void between orbs flying from one orb to another. Oh, I thought it was while you were on the river as well. No, that is why going by the river is the safest option. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Damn it, I want an excuse to blast some sticks for my party. <laughs> well, you can blast sticks for your party. You don't need a reason. <laughs> Without them hating me. As we have mentioned, it's easy to get into Karsarai, but it is incredibly difficult to leave. There is a gate on every fifth orb of Othrys that can be used to leave. The issue is petitioners cannot use the gates. The gates won't function for them. And because of that, the petitioners are violently resentful of anyone who can use the gates and are going to do everything in their power to make sure that everyone else gets stuck there. Purely out of spite. Because misery loves company. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of spite in this realm, and I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. And the gates are also typically guarded by powerful denizens, so it's probably going to be the Shator, or one of the varieties of Garalith. We're going to get to them in a little bit. They are roughly CR-15 monsters, so they're probably going to be the individuals standing guard over these portals to make sure that nobody is using them and you have to overcome them either by might or by wit in order to circumvent them to be able to use the portal to get out right like we said towards the beginning everything about this plane is going to be manipulations deceit 
power plays, things like that. And if you control something as valuable as a portal on this plane, you're pulling a lot of favors just to let someone look at it or even know it's there. And again, as likely as not that the information you got that, hey, there's a portal here and there's a dude guarding it, it honestly could just be like a little cardboard with a painting as deceitful as everybody is in this plane. Yeah, they The denizens of this plane are so practiced with lying and it comes so naturally. Everything that comes out of their mouth is going to be a lie of some sort. But they are so used to doing it that even if you were to take it and flip it 180 degrees and take the exact inverse of what they told you, that's still going to be a lie. It's still going to get you in trouble in a way that benefits them because they're able to understand that that's how it's going to work once you figure it out. As much as fade truth is twisted and convoluted, but always true, they have the exact, I mean, it's not a cursor. I lie. I don't think that's a term unless I'm coining it now. I want a Tartarian lie. Tartarian lie. There we go. Yeah. That's, we have fade truth and Tartarian lies. Those are, yeah, perfect. I love it. So those that have watched DS9, Garak, the spy that got left behind, that's a tailor that everything in his being is deceit and shadows and misdirection. That's everybody on this plane are at that level of misdirection and deceit. So again, making sure the information you have is going to be very difficult. And if you get to one of these portals, a very powerful denizen is going to control it. It's going to be a bitch and a half to get to, and it might not be real once you're there. <laughs> right. And as I also mentioned, the gate is on every fifth orb of Othrys. So you have to figure out if there is a gate on your planet-sized orb, and if not, which way you have to go to get to the closest orb with a gate on it, and how many orbs you have to hop in order to get to a gate. That's another one of the aspects that can really play into some interesting gameplay is the town that you're looking for may be on Authorus. It may be on this first layer, but the orb that you pop in on may not be the orb that that town is on. And so you have to figure out which orb has that town on it and where that orb is in relation to the one that you're on. Because that orb may be 20 orbs down the chain. Exactly. And so wanting to know your exact location, you're going to want a lot of good persuasion checks, a lot of insight checks, insight checks all day, every day on this plane. And as we'll get to some of your magical options aren't going to work as well as you would hope because the plane is chaotic. Yes. It's almost like you were looking at my notes because that's a good way to transition into the way that magic works in Carceri. We're working on segues. (laughs) Yeah, imagine that. So these rules are coming from the second edition books. They did away with all of the various magic effects in third edition. In third edition, it's just that this is a normal magic plane. So all magic works normally. That's kind of boring, but hey. So in second edition, the magic is varied and chaotic, but the darkness and evil of the plane pervert it in a predictable way. In short, it makes sure that all magic is used for selfish purposes. So it will benefit you at the cost of the party. Magnus would be fine here. I don't see what the problem is. (laughs) So spells that inherently allow you to do that function with maximum effectiveness. So starting in here, alteration spells. 
Alteration spells always turn in the most evil result possible. If they can't actually produce an evil result, so something like mage armor, they will manifest in a hostile sort of way. So flames will writhe into tortured faces. Sigils and symbols will twist around into horrible screaming faces. Those sorts of things. Just consider how your spell can be perverted into nightmare fuel, and that's probably what it's going to do. So again, this is a fun plane for the DMs. <laughs> oh yes. Not so much fun for spellcasters. Conjuration spells. Creatures can be summoned as normal, but they aren't bound by the spell to be obedient. So while most summoned creatures aren't automatically hostile, though intelligent ones typically are, with an appropriate bribe, you can ensure their loyalty for the duration of the spell. Otherwise, they turn on you. But just remember, you've summoned an intelligent creature and it realizes you've summoned it to Carceri. It's not going to be happy about that. Oh, no, it is going to be very unhappy about that. <laughs> and you are also in a plane of duplicity. You brought me where? <laughs> so it can take your bribe. That doesn't mean that it will stay loyal. It can take your bribe. It just might not honor it. <laughs> yeah, it will take your bribe and it may honor it for a bit. But that doesn't mean that it's going to continue to honor it further down the line whenever you actually need it. I have altered the terms of our agreement. Pray I do not alter them further. Yes, exactly that. The Vader would totally be on Carcerai. Absolutely. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, the longer I think about it, the more, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, he started off as Anakin. Anakin's on Carcerai. It's just going to happen. <laughs> yeah. He's going to go down to the third layer where the sand is just because. Just because. Hey, look, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Divination spells. All divination spells require the sacrifice of a comrade, an act of treachery, to work. The spell will take shape in the pool of the victim's blood. Because of this, diviners are universally hated on Carcerai. For some strange reason. Yeah, so your halfling divination wizard who gets all of their portents and all of their rerolls and all of their stuff, this is where you send them whenever you're tired of their shenanigans. Yes, and I as a DM would have to say that all of your divinations, as a DM, I would make sure that they were all Tartarin lies. Again, there's a thread of truth in there, but not absolute truth. So again, everything you get is going to be twisted to a way that would be perfect with your divination spells here. Just to add extra flavor on top of everything else. Oh yeah. So necromancy spells. Healing spells only provide half as much healing. Spells which raise the dead create autonomous undead who are not bound to your will. In the same vein as the conjuration spells. And damaging spells deal additional damage equal to the caster's level. Just imagine a 17th level cleric hitting something with Toll the Dead up here. Ooh, or just inflict serious wounds. But 4d12 plus 17. On a cantrip. Oh my. Yeah, that would be mean. That would be nasty. Again, if we did a Grim Dark Oz, the Wicked Witch would definitely be throwing some necromancy spells. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm seeing that in my brain. I'm putting it together. Obviously, our Tin Man's going to be a Warforged, and I'm getting completely sidetracked, so let's move on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. And finally, elemental damage. Elemental spells have effects that vary depending on layer and the affinity of the elements. So water is enhanced on Porphatis and Agathis, which are the two lowest levels. Porphatis is, it's an eternal ocean of acidic water. And Agathis 
should be familiar to anyone who has ever played a Hexblade Warlock is just a plane of ice, which is why Armor of Agathis gives you ice. Fair enough. So air is enhanced on Minithis. Minithis is the plane with the eternal sandstorms. So you've constantly got the wind whipping and then... Earth is enhanced on Colithis, which is the fourth layer, and it's the one that's just sheer mountainsides through the entire plane. So spell effects are doubled on layers where they're enhanced, and the opposing element is rendered virtually powerless. So, for example, a cone of cold on Agathis would deal double damage, but a fireball would fizzle before it could detonate. So, I mean, yeah, that's some good flavor, especially if you have your magic user players. They're going to have to figure out kind of where they're at and work their spell lists as they prepare them for each day or time as they use them. Again, if your party's got a bunch of elemental magical items, I would throw those in as well, particularly where they conflict or cancel each other out. Could definitely be a nice twist to throw on your players. Oh, yeah. Just because it's a wand of fireballs instead of the fireball spell doesn't mean that it's going to be any more effective. Or like if you had a plus two flame sword or maybe some ice arm. Yeah, absolutely. You could totally tweak with all of those and it would fit lore perfectly. Yeah. Okay. So that's basically what happens with the magic. So let's go ahead and move on to talk a little bit about the petitioners of Carcerai. Like other petitioners in other planes, they retain only the characteristics of their former lives that got them here, but they don't retain the memories of their previous lives. So here in Carcerai, they are bound to the plane, unable to leave, though most of them have no desire to actually try and go anywhere. There's a certain resignation that the plane breeds into the petitioners and a resentment as a result of the folks that can come and go as they please. So I know the stories, it's used in all kinds of like team building and stuff like that. You know, I heard the story so many times in high school and early college, but the concept that if you get a bunch of crabs in a barrel or a bucket, you know, they'll all clamor. But as soon as one tries to climb out, the other ones will all grab it and pull it back in. That is exactly carceri. Yes. So as I mentioned, the petitioners of Carcerai are compulsive liars. To quote the book, they lie constantly, compulsively, and with great cunning. And it is a safe bet to assume that everyone in Carcerai is lying to you, which could actually be an interesting thing to play with because you could end up giving them an NPC that they would run into who actually tells them the truth a couple of times as a manipulation tactic to get them to believe them once they start the lies. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Again, going back on that term, we coined the Tartarin truth. This would be really fun to work with where again, the Fae have to tell the truth. That is just innate to their being. The petitioners here, they lie so much. People might actually believe they might actually tell people they have to lie, but they can still sneak in a snippet of truth because the fact that they have to lie in itself is a lie. Yeah. It's like the, One of us always tells the truth. One of us always lies. But we're actually both lying. (laughs) Yes. The thing is that the person who says one of us tells the truth and one of us always lies is the liar who is saying that, you know, we're actually both liars here. Yeah. And then when you confront them, what? I lied. (laughs) And would feel no remorse, no sadness, nothing like, yeah, I lied. So what? Mm -hmm. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. It would just be a matter of fact sort of thing. It's Tuesday, of course. Yeah. So once you talk about the petitioners, you also have to talk about the native fiends of Carcerai. The native fiends of Carcerai are called the Gareleths. They are creations of the Bernaloth Apomps. The Bernaloths, according to lore, are the creatures of pure evil that created the Yugaloths. 
And in second edition, they were actually considered a subtype of Yugoloth. So it gets kind of muddy depending on what edition's lore you're pulling from. So AJ Pickett on YouTube actually a couple weeks ago released a wonderful video on the Garoliths. They're also called the Demodans, and I'm pretty sure that the video is titled Demodans. So I will strongly recommend that video. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'll try and remember to post a link on our Twitter account so that you can go and watch it because it is actually a very well done video. And I'm thoroughly impressed with all of his videos. He has access to a lot more of the materials than I do (laughs) because he has access to all of the old editions of Dragon and Dungeon Magazine where they had all of the articles. And so he is much better on lore than I am. Let me just put it that way. I aspire to his level of lore knowledge. So the Garoliths. They see Apomps as their creator god because they all carry this fragment of power from him within them. The Garoliths were originally created. They're basically reanimated Yugoloth corpses. That was the original Garoliths. And so Apomps used a fragment of his power and sprinkled it across these 9,999 Yugoloth bodies and raise them as three grades, if you will, of Garoliths. And he went to his other Baranoloth buddies and says, look at what I am able to do. And they're like, no, this is an (laughs) abomination. We have worked so hard to purge the corruption of law and chaos from ourselves. And your creations are riddled with chaos. And so they banished Apomps and his Garoliths to Carceri. They lack imagination. <laughs> and then they promptly declared war on everybody in the Lower Plains. As you do. Especially the Yugoloths. They will go out of their way to kill a Yugoloth if they find one. Now, one neat thing I've read when I was reading the lore on these is that the Garoliths themselves and Apomps has a certain thing that if the blood war reaches certain points close to him on this plane, his number of the Garoliths double, just boom. Okay, great. We need more troops. Bam, they're there. And it's like, he can just call up extras in an instant, which is kind of a terrifying thing. Cause these things are not lightweights on their own. Oh, absolutely not. No. And then he can just like snap his fingers and double them. And it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> and this is one thing that AJ Pickett brings up in his video is that there's no mention of where they go after they're no longer needed, whether they just die and go back to the original 10,000 or if they, you know, just stay at their numbers until they die out due to attrition back down to the right number or what happens. So I leave that to DM discretion. I would imagine if they are called for battle a lot of them are expected to be lost. The fact that you can, hey, I'm just going to throw away half my number. But yeah, again, that's one of those things that's left the DM discretion. And the Garoliths serve as the de facto jailers of Carceri. They torment the petitioners. They guard the portals that lead between the orbs or that lead off of Carceri. So these are the powerful individuals that you're going to have to overcome if you want to try and leave. And the way that they work is the higher level ones, the Shator and the Kelubar, whenever one of them dies, one from the next lower rank 
just morphs its body and becomes the next rank up. They're like creepy, fleshy Modrons. Kind of. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And then whenever the numbers of Ferastu drop below the 3,333 that it's supposed to be, one is spontaneously generated from a random corpse on Carceri. Now, one thing about the Ferastu, too, are they are supposed to be tall with very long legs and very thin spindly arms. These are your Slendermen. If you've got younger players at your table and you want to throw some Slendermen lore or maybe some Endermen lore from Minecraft, things like that, you could work these into that really easily. All right. So we mentioned a little bit about A-Pomps, and so that sort of gives us a little bit of a sideways shift from the Garrulous into the deities that are present in Carceri. Quite a few of them. There are actually <laughs> quite a few of them. This is the Arkham Asylum of D&D world. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so the first, as we've mentioned, is Apomps the three-sided. He is the creator god of the Garoliths. He is rumored to have a realm on Agathis, the lowest level. And he is in a constant competition for corpses with the god Falazur, the evil dragon god of undeath and decay, who is primarily worshipped by Draco Liches, vampiric dragons, and shadow dragons. So just your low-level mobs, don't worry about them, they're fine. <laughs> oh yeah, his original form was that of a black dragon, so he does have the skull features of a black dragon with the horns that come out the sides and wrap around towards the jawline. And his scales are supposed to be limbed in silver, so it's got this little like silver rim around his black scales. That is absolutely gorgeous. I need to see an artist do this. Our artists that listen, please make this happen. And because he's a god of undeath and decay, frequently is either depicted as an almost skeletal dragon, you know, with the bones hanging out. Or sometimes his scales and skin are pulled taut over his bones, giving him a very gaunt appearance. And his wings are tattered to the point where he can't fly anymore. I could see that. I'd almost like to see the skeletal wings like Blizzard did with Kerrigan, where she has that kind of skeletal wings in her form. Or Syndragosa. Yeah, Syndragosa would be another good option for that as well. Artists, please make this happen, because I can't. <laughs> And then transitioning off of Falizer, because we're keeping in this theme of the dead and the undead, he is the occasional ally of Nerul, who is the Greyhawk god of death. He's the god of death that was listed in the third edition 3.5 player's handbook because they set most of their stuff in Greyhawk as default as opposed to the Forgotten Realms. In third edition, he rules from his hidden temple of Necromantean, on Agathis. At some point in 4th edition, he was slain and his divine power was usurped by the Raven Queen. Who now lives happily in the Shadowfell. So as a DM, I would make the call that the Shadowfell easily has a portal from the Shadowfell to Carcerai. Probably just right behind the, the Raven Queen herself. Yeah, she has to have a way to send souls there because she is the judge of souls. Right. Though it's never been explicitly stated, that's headcanon. I'm going with it. You can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> and Nerul is basically the Grim Reaper because he is a red skeletal figure in a black hooded robe carrying a scythe that has this spectral scarlet energy blade on it. Right. If you've done some 40k, some of those stuff along there, Nerul's definitely got some cool art of his own. But it depends on what issue. Because again, Nerul after 4th edition, he went bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, someone killed the god of death. Those bastards. The world's going to be very crowded now. Great. Thanks, guys. So within Carcerai, there are also 
two different giant gods. The first and the most powerful is Grolantor, who is the patron of hill giants. He is said to be willfully ignorant and could be quite intelligent and quite scheming if he took the time to actually let himself think about things. He is on the second layer of Karsarai where all of the souls of the people who gave into their animalistic tendencies is. So that's the sort of vibe that he goes with, typically. He also has a second home, if you will, in the abyss, but he actually prefers to be in Carceri because the vibe of the layer that he lives on when he's in Carceri just feels better to him. I mean, you go where you're comfortable, so I guess that's just how that happens. <laughs> and the second of the giant gods is his brother, Karantor, who is the patron god of the Fomorians, who are the cursed giant kin that now reside in the Feydark, following their failed attempt to subjugate the proto-elves of the Feywild. Right, so the Fomorians, they're a weird derivative, or actually the elves are the derivative of the Fomorians. You didn't hear a whole lot of them recently. Again, they were big first edition, second edition-ish, and then they kind of disappeared. And the most recent is Jim Butcher's novels have kind of brought the Fomorians back a little bit. And they're seeing a little bit of a resurgence, which again, they've got some lore behind them, which is kind of cool. We've discussed them when we discussed our Feywild way, way back when. We also talked about them a bit whenever we talked about Heroes of Tara, because they do play prominently in early Celtic lore. They are the giant kin of Ireland. Yes. So again, you're kind of getting them, but most of your quote, quote, modern or current elves are evolutionary descendants of the Fomorian. And I'm kind of glad to see them get some more play and kind of come back into the spotlight a little bit because they're definitely some interesting critters. So there are two other gods that are notable for having a presence in Karsarai, but not really being stuck here. The first one is Parafair, who is a chaotic god of tricks and traps who delights in the subtlety of mazes and riddles. Imagine him being here. Oh my God, really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> and the gods really hate him. I can't imagine why. Yeah. I got nothing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is Veron, who is the drow god of thievery and treachery. He is unique as he is the only male god in the drow pantheon, the Dark Seldarine. And he chooses to make his home here so that he can stay near, but not too near, Lolf in the demon web pits of the abyss. That is a good wisdom. <laughs> I mean, because he does have this air of being sort of a revolutionary. And so he doesn't want to get too caught up in the politics of Lolf's court in her vicinity so that, you know, he can operate his schemes without interference. I could see that. I could just also see, again, going back to the old Drist novels, very largely a matriarchal society. Men were work soldiers. They were disposable. They were easily killed. And so being the only male god in this pantheon, being not within arms or knife's reach is a good place for him to continue to exist. So again, he's close enough he can keep tabs, but not close enough he can be struck. That is a good wisdom. So well done, this dude. So a couple of the Forgotten Realms gods are also here. Talona, the goddess of death, and Malar, the god of the hunt. Malar was specifically banished to Karsarai by Talos the Destroyer, who is the evil god of storms. I don't know what their beef was, but clearly they had beef because Talos banished Malar to Karsarai. 
Right. And that was something I was going to bring up earlier with the plane. As we talked about, you've got a lot of demons. You obviously have some horrible people, very insidious, but not everybody in Tartarus belonged to that ilk. Some of these evil gods or evil patrons, if there was a particularly troublesome angel for them or a good aligned creature, if they could, they would grab them and throw them here because it locks them away and keeps them out of their hair, which again, with so many of your patrons that are absolutely vile, evil, deceitful, lying, are you going to know when you run up against one of the good ones? So again, it adds that unsurety, a great way to do that because you might run up against an actual angel here who means you well how are you gonna know right and then most prominently the titans of greek myth are here there are 11 titans in total here including cronus who is the king of the titans and father of zeus and poseidon and hades i think right yes because zeus poseidon and hades are brothers correct so they make their realm on mount othrys which gives the uppermost layer of carceri its name It was once part of Arborea, but whenever the Olympian gods overthrew the Titans, the entire mountain was cast into Carceri and the Titans with it. Yes. I'd go back and forth. You're probably not going to find Prometheus here because he's currently having his liver eaten on the material realm. Prometheus is not one of the ones listed. Yeah, I was going to say, because he's currently having his liver eaten, I believe, on the material realm every day by the giant vultures. One person from Greek myth I would probably throw in here would be Daedalus, the person who created the labyrinth, not necessarily because he's bad or evil or twisted, but he was very clever in his own right. So again, that kind of fits. But someone would definitely throw him here to try to keep them out of his hair and maybe to keep certain secrets hidden. I would throw him here and see if your party could kind of find him, because if anybody could figure a way out, it would be him. Yes. Though I think that he is probably in Hades. Would he be in Hades? I don't know. He might be on Dis in Hades. I could see him there. I don't know if there's official word. I'll have to look that up. I don't know as if they didn't port all of the mythological figures from all of the mythologies into D&D. And that would have to be a first or second edition thing, because they took all the Olympian gods and all that out in third edition they chose poorly i'm still bitter that's why we're covering them come on exactly yeah we're fixing your mistake wizards there's only one real faction outside of the various and sundry gods and their ilk within carceri it's a faction out of sigil known as the revolutionary league commonly referred to as the anarchists i like them we got to get our 80s punk going (laughs) yeah they control one safe house on authoris is the only safe house that is known to all of the members of the faction. And it is this construction of black igneous rock called the Bastion of Last Hope. I'm going to go ahead and say it's Obsidian. Probably. And the Bastion of Last Hope is absolutely an awesome name for a punk album. So yeah, Anarchy in the UK, let's rock it. (laughs) And the reason I like it is because it is shaped like a giant toad. Ian likes his amphibians. I am not the only one who likes toad creatures. D&D is littered with toad creatures. They are, but you, you've got a special love, man. Even the Garoliths are described as having toady features. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, and you do you. It's just there's a thread. You love your amphibians, man. <laughs> well, I like to kill my amphibians. I don't know what that says about me. I mean, I'm not a particularly violent or cruel individual to actual frogs and toads, I rather like actual frogs and toads. I wouldn't go about killing actual frogs and toads. Let me just go on the record and state that. (laughs) But I like killing me some toady monsters. Fair enough. 
And so the Bastion is one of the few locations in Carceri to have a permanent portal that connects both ways to Sigil. And it's the only one that is not guarded by Gareliths or other powers of the plane. So this is a very, very powerful bit of knowledge to have if you know where this is and can get there. Getting there's the trick. Right. <laughs> and throughout the editions, it's rumored to be a place that you can go to hire assassins, buy illicit goods, and get facial reconstruction surgery to completely change your appearance. We will get into that a little bit more next week whenever we're actually going into some depth on each of the individual layers. But that's the anarchists. That's basically what they do. They get funded by various prominent individuals within Sigil who like to use the threat of the anarchists to sort of scare people into obedience. And the trick with that is that they have to be actually powerful and actually scary enough to be threatening, but they also hate having anyone tell them what to do. So they're as likely to use the money and the weapons and the armor that they're getting from these patrons against the patrons themselves just because they deign to tell them what to do. Yeah, I'm totally getting that 80s kind of sci-fi. Again, if you want a cyberpunk feel, these guys are definitely going to have it. They're going to have the high-end magic tech. Again, we can use those interchangeably. They're not really going to want to serve or obey any given power structure. So yeah, these are definitely very free, very wild. They could be a very fun faction to run with. So yeah, I can touch. Okay, last chunk of stuff before we sign off. The creatures of Carceri. More critters. As we have mentioned, the Gareliths, for starters, AJ Pickett in his video on the Gareliths or the Demodans, as they are also known, mentions a fifth edition third party source book. I believe it's on the DMs Guild that actually has stat blocks for the Gareliths. Oh, well done. And he comments on the stat blocks and what elements of the stat blocks he would personally change to make them a little more in line with how they used to function in older editions. Okay. Again, I highly recommend his channel in general and this video in particular. So starting off, there are three flavors of Gareliths, if you will. The lowest ranking ones are the Ferastu. They are formed from the corpse of a humanoid creature that dies on Carceri. Basically, they are these six and a half, seven foot tall, kind of gangly looking humanoids with the over wide mouth that gives them that sort of toad like appearance. They constantly excrete this black tar like substance from their pores that can be incredibly sticky. The Frostu seem to have control over when they are and are not sticky. They're able to use that to their advantage to like be able to quickly climb up things so they have a climb speed equal to their movement speed whenever a weapon attack hits them they have a chance to trap the weapon in their sticky tar and then you have to succeed on a strength check to actually pull your weapon away or otherwise it gets stuck there and you're disarmed again to touch up on some common lore these very much are going to be your slenderman very gangly very tall they're going to have that black appearance because of the tar. They're just going to kind of pop up and appear. And then they're going to haunt your dreams forever. So there you go. Yeah. They're also incredibly strong. Even in second edition, they had a strength of 19. 
and they're capable of going into a berserk rage like a barbarian. I think in the 5th edition port that AJ Pickett puts in his video, basically they have the reckless attacks feature that the barbarian has, where you can give yourself advantage on all your weapon attacks And in return, all attacks against you are made with advantage, which isn't as bad of a deal whenever you're covered in sticky tar that can trap your enemy's weapons. Yeah, no, I mean, that works out really well. They also have some innate spell-like abilities. So among other things, they can cast Detect Good, Detect Invisibility, Dispel Magic, Fear. They can turn themselves invisible. They can also cast a spell called Weakness, which reduces the target's strength score. So if I were to do it in 5th edition, basically I would make it impose disadvantage on strength-based ability checks and attack rolls. I can see that, or possibly, as we discussed earlier, removing your proficiency bonuses as well. Yeah, but disadvantage is a much simpler mechanic. Okay. Once a day, they have a 40% chance to summon one to two additional for us to via a gate spell. So if things are going poorly, they have a chance to summon backup. Given the treacherous nature of the plane, there is that rather substantial chance that his buddies are going to leave him hanging. Yeah. And again, that would be a fun thing for a DM to do is just have, you could probably dance with Smokin' this too, but... If they're there and they're hammering on the party a little too hard, have them switch sides suddenly because chaos woohoo. They are immune to acid, poison, and non-magical weapons, as well as fear effects and illusions. And they are resistant to fire and cold damage. These things are not going down easily. No, and these are the weak ones. (laughs) These are still like a challenge rating 8 or 9 creature. They're the weak ones. The next one up, the middle management, if you will, of the Gareleths are the Kelubar. They're also known as slime lefts because instead of oozing this black pitch, they ooze this foul-smelling, acidic, and poisonous mucus that sort of covers them in this ichor. Their whole thing is they love to hoard wands and other small magic items that have a discrete size and a distinct use. So things that have a very intentional purpose. Yeah, so you're going to find like wands, rings, probably some magical cloaks. Necklaces. Necklaces, yeah. This would be a good way for your party to find some magic jewelry to upgrade. Probably around level, I don't know, maybe level 10 or so when your party is kind of needing to upgrade that next equipment bump before they get along. This would be a good in-session and arc boss to go ahead and kind of drop some loot for your party. They have access to the entire spell list available to the Ferastu. Plus, they can cast Ray of Enfeeblement and Spider Climb. So they're able to use Spider Climb to get that climbing ability that the Ferastu naturally had with their sticky tar. And their gate allows them a 60% chance to summon 1 to 2 Ferastu or 40% chance to summon 1 to 2 Kelubar once per day. Yeah, so again, just for simplicity's sake, roll a d10, 6 plus, extra monsters, done and done. <laughs> well, no, it would be 1 to 6. 1 to 6 would be... Oh, yeah, 1 to 6, yeah, so 6 and below. I was told there'd be no math. <laughs> they have the same immunities as the Frost do as well, except that they are also immune to fire and cold, not resistant, and they can only be damaged by magical weapons of at least plus 2. So your plus 1 magic sword is still not going to be enough. Finally... You have the Shator. The Shator are the big bads of the Garoliths. Their whole big thing that they love to do 
is to go to other planes and sell information to others on how to summon non-Garalith outsiders from the lower planes, usually in the form of selling their true names. There's one that is mentioned in AJ Pickett's video that has set up shop in Sigil and sells the names of Yugoloths. Ooh. Now, again, this was something that they were toying with with the Unearthed Arcana that they decided not to release with Tasha's. I hope they revisit it. Ian and I have discussed revisiting it, but the Oomancy, or the magic of knowing true names. And this would definitely be someone to tie in with that kind of spellcasting. So they are also oddly fond of chimeric creatures and will often take them as pets. So imagine, if you will, a Shator who has a couple of manticores that he just sort of keeps in the front parlor as pets. No, You know who this is? This is Dr. Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> so they also have access to the full Kelubar spell list. And in addition to that, they have access to Raven Feeblement and Stinking Cloud three times a day, as well as Cloud Kill. And they can also summon 1 to 6 Ferastu or 1 to 6 Kelibar without fail, or a 30% chance to summon 1 to 2 Shator via a gate once per day. They are immune to all non-magical damage, enchantment spells, and illusions, and they cannot be harmed by magical weapons of less than plus 3 enchantment, and all edged weapons take a minus 1 penalty to attack and damage rolls. Wow. Oh, and I also forgot to mention that all three of these had a 50% magic resistance. So there's a 50% chance that your spell just wasn't going to work. Now, what's the CR on this creature top out at? I think in the conversion, it was a CR 15. Really? Only a 15? Impressive. Well, there were elements that kind of got left off, I think. Okay. Yeah, but that's that's the Garoliths. That's the fiends that you run into in Carcerai. That's Carcerai's version of the demons or the devils or the Yugoloths. So Again, they're not lightweights. No, absolutely not. So the next creature on the list is easily my favorite <laughs> in Carcerai. I had to go and nerd out on these guys a little bit, mainly because of the lore snippet that was put into the Planescape book on them. They're called the Gautier. They are these gangly, nearly skeletal humanoids that are native to Minithis, which is the third layer. It's the layer with all of the blowing, stinging sandstorms, with sand that can rend flesh from bone. This is where we're sticking Anakin. This is where we're sticking Anakin. They are descended from a race of humanoids native to the Outlands, which were called the Tyr. In their language, it meant steadfast. And they were a very devoted, very religious race of humanoids. And they sought to build a temple that was so grand that their god would come and live in it, even if it was only just for a visit. And so over generations, they built this massive structure of marble and gold and precious stones and all of these materials that are so rare that you can't find them anymore. One of the passages from the book describing the things that were in here, frescoes of naked light, tapestries of butterfly breath, and carpets woven of laughter decorated halls so vast that the flocks of doves and ravens that made their home within could fly straight for many days without diverting their course. This was a monstrous temple to their god. Yeah, this thing sounds absolutely amazing. And so... Ultimately, their god, his attention was drawn to the temple, and they finished the temple, and the god decided to come and inhabit it. But, but it also drew the attention of other more powerful gods 
who were jealous and sought to claim the temple as their own. Boo. And so their whole thing was they were going to come and supplant the god that was in this temple and they were going to kill off the tier who made it because, well, obviously they're devoted to this god. And if they're devoted to this god, well, then they're not going to be devoted to me. So I'm going to just get rid of them. And because it would be a particularly selfish, evil god that would want to steal another god's temple in the first place. As they do. As they do. So the tier surrounded the temple, the whole race. They just surrounded the entire temple and they went into prayer and they were begging their god to save them from the coming onslaught. And their god was more afraid for his own safety than that of his worshippers and refused to aid them. And so they went to a level of spite that I aspire to. And I quote, Without taking time to weep at their betrayal at the hands of their beloved Lord or to despair at the inescapable death descending upon them, every last individual who had worshipped the uncaring power assembled together outside the object of their toil, the object of their grandfather's 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 toil, and proceeded in chanting words ancient even in those time-lost days. Words of revenge, words to repay an act of infidelity so great that it would condemn a people the like of whose piety has never been seen since. Words which composed an arcane ritual of power forgotten, sealing the temple and imprisoning their once-adored god within a citadel built on the dreams and devotions of those who had loved him more than themselves. His zealous people, those same folk the power had been so quick to dismiss and condemn, entombed him in a vault in which to spend the rest of his immortal, undying days. I like it. Well done. (laughs) This reminds me of really one of my, I'm not going to say one of my favorite, but he's very interesting to me. It was a French nobleman named Gil de Ra. If you've watched the Fate Zero series, he is personalized as Bluebeard in the Fate series. His thing was he was a very devoted man. He was very upstanding, very active within the church at the time. He fought with Joan of Arc during the Hundred Years' Wars. And at the capture and eventual execution of Joan de Arc, he felt so betrayed by God that he went through and decided that if God wouldn't show his face to a pious man, then he would show his faith and wrath to an absolutely vile man. So as much as this man did in piety and generosity and good works in his younger days, he went and turned and went completely the opposite direction in his latter days. And when they executed him, he said his only regret was he was being executed by the hands of man and not by being smited, smote by the divine will of God. So it kind of has that same kind of middle finger. This is what I'm going to do it my own way. Fine. Definitely has that same feeling of spite and just, you know, disappointment and anger and bitterness. And I got right in the fields, man, right in the fields. Yeah. (laughs) And so whenever they finish this ritual, the entire race and the temple disappeared. And at some point later, the remnants of the race were found wandering in Carceri. They were now called themselves the Gautier, which in their language means once steadfast. So that just goes to emphasize the cultural shift that they've gone through. I like this. I would almost want to set up like a dysphoria of these people, but then I think maybe their displacement, they're happy with it. And I bet they still carry that spite. And so they're okay with it and they embrace where they're at. 
I could see that as a lore or as like a cultural thing. That would definitely be flavors I added in as a DM is that they're here and they don't want to leave because as long as some of them are here, that temple and that God's trapped forever. So they're doing it out of that much spite. Right. So the options that were given in the book is perhaps they willingly condemned themselves as part of the ritual or perhaps the God twisted and condemned them to Carceri for daring to lash out against it. I could see both. I prefer the first one, but I could see both. Or the way that I personally would run this is perhaps as part of the ritual, they brought their temple of the captive god to Carceri and that they're stuck here guarding it to prevent their god from escaping and unable to actually leave themselves. I like that. And that does bring up something. I mean, when we talk about the lower planes, you think barren and the landscaping, and we talk about some of the conditions in these things where it's it's very brutal. We talk about like sandstorms that strip away things where it's very frozen. That doesn't mean there can't be places of absolute beauty here. Just because it's beautiful doesn't mean it's not inherently corrupt. And so I could see this temple being lodged here still. So a couple of their things, mechanically speaking, they're immune to acid and fire, and they have an innate ability to transform someone's flesh into acid once a day. Oh my. So they make a touch attack, and if they hit, they deal 3d6 acid damage. That's... And the acid damage takes twice as long to heal naturally, and magical healing of it is only half as effective. So basically, if, let's say we rolled max damage, we rolled an 18, you would have to get 36 points of healing before you started regaining hit points normally. Wow. Because it would be halved that healing. So needless to say, if you're bringing your party here, you're not bringing your first levels here. This is definitely going to be a mid to higher level range for your party. You know, probably I'd say level 7 to 10 plus. Yeah. All right. So some of the other creatures, two of the other basic creatures that are found across multiple planes, Terralins and Vores. Terralins are these weird winged shark creatures. So they're Sharknado. They're flying sharks that can also walk on land. It's kind of weird, but they can fly almost silently at 60 feet per round. So imagine just walking along and then stealth shark dive bombs you from above. I'm telling you, it's Sharknado. It kind of is. Everyone's seen the mini that people made where it's a bunch of plastic sharks in a cotton tornado. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then vores are these intelligent hyena-like creatures that have a chance to be shamans. So you have a pack of hyenas and a couple of them have magic and they're of human intellect. These feel kind of like the gnolls in World of Warcraft. They're going to have that hyena laugh. A lot of them are going to be shamanistic. But they are going to be probably more intelligent than your average gnoll in D&D setting. So yeah, these are going to be near human intelligence. So yeah, again, not the scariest thing we've come across, but nothing to ignore. Oh no, that's still coming up. <laughs> so you're going to have various demons, devils, and yugoloths, mostly up on that first layer. There are specific mentions of demons being present on lower layers as well. But if they're involved in the blood war, there's a good chance that you can find them at some point in some location in Carceri. Another creature one that I actually really enjoy using at my table that you can find here are Vargoyles. Vargoyles are these undead creatures. They're basically a flying vampiric head. They are a head that has ripped itself free from its victim's body and it peels the skin off of basically off of the shoulders 
to use as flappy wings to fly around and they swoop in and bite their victims. And if bitten, you can contract the disease that will eventually make your head remove itself, (laughs) killing you and turning it into a Vargoyle. Magnus got bit by one of these once. Yes, he did. Um, And almost succumbed to it. Came really, really close. Yeah, you got to like stage four of six on the disease chart on that one. Magnus has had some close calls. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) One neat thing that you can kind of see a relation that's not direct because they're not quite so flashy. They're a bit more flamey. But you have something very similar in the Doom series. You have those flaming skulls that will generally pop. Flame skulls are a thing in D&D. They are a thing in D&D, but the flame skulls from Doom will actually pop themselves off bodies frequently and then come and charge at you. So not quite a one-to-one, but a close. Right, And then the last creature is called the Vath. V-A-A-T-H. They are. They're these weird amalgamation of reptile and insect. So they've got this big, muscular, dark-scaled body with this shiny black carapace that covers the head. And it has venomous saliva and these big old long, sharp teeth. But it also has this tongue-like tentacle that sort of hangs down that has this sort of lamprey mouth on the end of it. It kind of almost looks like venom. Kind of. In a humanoid form, yeah. They are also of human intelligence, so between 8 and 10 intelligence score. And they are inherently cruel, sadistic creatures that are the embodiment of the evil tinged with chaos of the plane. They like to instill fear in their prey. They like to play with it whenever possible. Again, still getting the whole symbiote fill with these things. (laughs) So one of the things that they can do in combat is they use their tentacle tongue thing to grapple a creature. And while they're grappled, they take 1d4 piercing damage per round for 1d4 plus 2 rounds. At the end of that period, if they haven't been broken free from the grapple yet, the chewy mouth on the tentacle bit severs their spinal cord from their brain. And so they are now paralyzed from the neck down. Oh my. And then they spend the next 1d6 plus 4 turns gleefully dismembering their victim while they watch. I really like these things. These need to be on the table more frequently. (laughs) And any creature that witnesses this has to succeed on a wisdom save or be stunned for 1d3 rounds. And if a creature becomes paralyzed by this, so if they get paralyzed but they get saved before they die. They have to receive magical healing in order to heal their traumatic spinal injury. And they have to make, in second edition, it was a save versus death, but you'd have to make a a save or take permanent wisdom damage. Wow. Yeah, these things definitely need to be on the table more frequently. Holy crap. And the weird thing about it is they aren't that high of a CR creature. They were worth, I think, 975 experience points, which would make them a roughly CR4? Yeah, these totally feel like the Marvel symbiote. I mean, down to the tongue and them being kind of wonky. And yeah, no, these totally have that feel, which really are some of my favorite characters in Marvel anyway. So yeah, no, these need to be on the table. Holy crap. (laughs) All right. I think that does it for today. Yeah, so, I mean, we've got this place kind of giving you an idea, 
So next week, we're going to come back in and we're going to hit these major landmarks and places that you're going to want to see. So we're going to set up some background and some scenarios for you. If you wanted to run a campaign or a session here, kind of point you in the right direction, give you some stuff to kind of really fill out what's what and what's going on. Yeah, it's probably not going to be quite as long as some of our other episodes on the planes, assuming that we can stay on task through the whole thing and we don't get (laughs) on too many tangents. Just because there aren't as many things in Carcerai as there have been in previous planes to talk but about. But there, there's plenty, though. Oh, there absolutely is. And there's some great stuff that I'm really excited to get to show you guys. But that's going to happen next week. So thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at under common taste we're also on patreon patreon.com slash under common taste that's where all of our write-ups end up getting posted i still have to get the christmas ones done and up hopefully by the time this episode is out i will have that done if not then it should happen a little bit later in that week or i guess this week it should happen later this week. And we are also on Discord. You can find the link to our Discord channel in the show notes. We would love it if you would come over and chat. Yeah, absolutely. You can find our podcast wherever you find your podcast. Please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. We actually have new logo art, so we'd love to have you guys meet Cobble, who is now going to be the mascot for Under Common Taste. We were very excited to get him finished up. It was right before we took our break. So yeah, come say hi to Cobble. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. David Sutherland, Suth David on Reddit, at Willex underscore 73 on Instagram. The wonderful artist great to work with and we are so super happy with the art that he came up with so yeah fantastic job thank you and with that thank you for joining us stay safe we'll see you next week when we dive into the layers of carcerai happy gaming thank you for listening to another episode of undercommon taste you can find links to all of our social media accounts twitter instagram facebook youtube and twitch as well as our patreon and discord channel in the show notes our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.